Hey, it's Andrew Claven, and this is this week's interview with John Nolte, famously of Breitbart and now the author of Borrowed Time. Uh, I just want to take a second before we talk to John to talk about uh, Andrew Breitbart and how Breitbart site got started. Uh, Andrew was a, a friend of mine. Uh, maybe some of you guys, your younger guys, don't remember who he was, but he was one of the most important conservative media voices in the early uh, two, in the 2000s and one of the only voices in conservatism along with Nolte who understood the the culture and he really went about Los Angeles collecting every talented conservative around and bringing them together so they could make stuff and talk to each other and develop and be heard and collaborate and there was I would I think it's safe to say there was almost nothing about Andrew Breitbart that was like Jesus except for that except for the fact that he walked around collecting people and saying to him, basically, now I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he did. You know, I mean, some of the people he brought together, there was me, there was Ben Shapiro, Stephen Crowder, Jeremy Boring, uh, Alfonso Rachel, Bill Whittle. I mean, just about anybody who came out of the California conservative movement was, you know, a, a Breitbart find and at some point. And, and of course, John Nolte himself. But I was, he, he started out with a site called Big Hollywood, which was, that the whole point was to attack the culture and, as he said, to make a warm place where people could come in who, were, who felt that they had been excluded from the culture. And I was very honored to write one of the first pieces, and I've told this story on the show before, but it, I, it was called Why We Fight. And I wrote this piece, and the, the piece went up. It was the first day of, of Big Hollywood, the first Breitbart site, and Rush Limbaugh read it on the air. And I remember Breitbart calling him up. He was ecstatic you know, saying, oh boy, we're really having fun now. And when I was writing the piece, I wrote this very dramatic piece about how we were going to take on the left of Hollywood. And it ended with this kind of peroration where I was, you know, working myself up into this thing. And I said, you know, they, they think we're going to be afraid, but we're not afraid. And I started listing all the famous actors who we knew were conservatives. And I would say, this guy's not afraid, and that guy's not afraid, and this guy's not afraid, and this guy's not afraid. And I sent it to Breitbart. As I recall, I sent it by fax back in those days. It was 2008. And I sent it to Breitbart. And five minutes later, the phone rings. And it's Breitbart, and he says, this is great, but you got to take out all those actors' names. And I said, why? And he said, because they're afraid. They're afraid of their career. The key to making the Breitbart sites run was finding somebody who was absolutely unafraid and, in fact, was fearless and who understood Hollywood and culture and who just could not be moved off the dime. And that was a young, then, filmmaker and writer, John Nolte. I used to call him the last honest man because the guy was just as plain-spoken and incorruptible as it's possible for a human to be. There was nothing. I mean, he didn't even know when he was stepping on the faces of powerful people. And it was because of Nolte and obviously because of Breitbart that the site became what it is, which is an imperial, you know, part of the empire of right-wing media. Uh, even after Breitbart's death, he still, Nolte is now semi-retired, but he has written a novel, in spite of all the advice I gave him to not do that, he has written a novel called Borrowed Time, which is really good. It's a really exciting kind of hard-boiled novel. And he's still, you still write every day for the Breitbart site. We're going to talk about Borrowed Time and all the things. Nolte, it is great to see you. You too, Drew. Thank you very much for having me on. And you got a great audience, so let me say hello to all of them. <laughs> yeah, and you look. I, you now look like a mountain man. You got the white beard. You look like. <laughs> I remember I when you were in mountain. LA, sophisticate. You know, <laughs> <laughs> happily living on a mountain. <laughs> yes, yes. I never forgave you for leaving me alone. I remember that day you left. My my <laughs> wife kept saying to me, "Stop bothering him about it." And I said, "He's leaving." You know, <laughs> but, you, but you were right. You were absolutely right. So let's let's start, start by talking about borrowed time. I mean, there's nothing I could do to talk you out of novel writing, apparently. Uh, it, 
tell people what it's about. It's about uh, it's about a guy who is immortal, Joshua Mason. He's been alive for thousands and thousands of years, and he's tried to not get attached. I mean, he understood very early on that if you're immortal, you're going to watch everything you love die. And when we meet him, he has fallen in love. He is watching his wife die. Um, he also made the mistake of not getting rich, which, of course, someone who's immortal could easily do. But if you make money, people can track you and he doesn't want to be tracked. But now he needs money. So to make money, he sells his life to rich people. He lets them murder him. That's his that's his uh, renewable resource. Huh. And this story kind of takes off after um, he gets mixed up with the wrong people. And that's where the story blows up. He also has to take care of his grandson, his wife's grandson, Charlie. And Charlie ends up not being as innocent as Mason thought he was. And that becomes sort of a major complication in the story. And you're, I mean, you're right. You warned me for a long time not to write a novel. And that was, it didn't take me a lot of convincing. And it was not something I wanted to do. I mean, I'm, I was 55 before I started writing this thing. That's how much I didn't want to write a novel. <laughs> but it was the Charlie idea that hit me. And when that idea hit me, I think I felt, I'm not, con I'm not comparing the ideas, but I think I felt like Peter Benchley did when he came up with the idea of three guys hunting a shark and discovering the shark is bigger than the boat. <laughs> the Charlie idea was just one of those ideas where I thought, well, now I got to write it because those kinds of ideas don't come along very often. And that was two years of my life. It, it ate up two years of my TV time that I lost. So, uh, but you know, it worked out good. People liked the book. It got published yeah. by a real publisher and, uh, uh, the reaction has been good. I'm not going to make any money on it, but the, uh, the, the reaction to it has made it worthwhile. Um, uh, so I don't resent writing it as much as I did three months ago. I, I, I mean, I noticed that people just are eating the book. It's really well written. I mean, I, I was shocked. I thought you were illiterate, obviously, you know, like that. <laughs> no, I, no, I mean, you write all this great stuff. Well, well you know, it's inter it, it is interesting. You write all this great stuff on Breitbart. And it's, it's I mean, I, I crack up every time I read you because you just go after Hollywood. With so, You're so informed about it. You know exactly what's going on. You worked a little bit in the movie business while you were there. You know exactly who they are. But it's, but it's polemic. I mean, you're going after them and taking them apart. And this book is not like that at all. I mean, it's just, it's a, I mean, it's a very hot, just like you were describing, a very hot, fast story about actual people in this, you know, obviously fantastic situation. Had, was it hard to move? People ask me this all the time. Was it hard to move from one form to another? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it took me five years to come up with the plot. I mean, one of the reasons I wasn't a very successful screenwriter was because plot is incredibly difficult for yeah. me because plot requires imagination. That's one of the things that awes me about you. I mean, you pump out an amazing plot every year. And I this took me five years. The plot took me five years to figure out. And I don't know how guys like you do it. To me, it's like magic. I don't, I have no, it's like watching someone play the piano. I don't know how you do that. It's so far beyond my talents. So that was difficult. Um, but one of the things I told myself was that I wasn't going to write a polemic. I did not want this to be the equivalent of right wing woke. I didn't want it to have applause lines for people who might be fans of, uh, of what I do at Breitbart. Because I thought that would be, for one thing, I knew it would be it would it would ruin the book. 
because that's bad art, no matter what the political persuasion is. And it would be very hypocritical. And I wanted, and you know, I could I could have written that, and uh, you know, I think maybe some some people might have liked it because some people like that kind of stuff, and I understand why because you like to poke your finger in the eye of the other side as much as you can. But I wouldn't have enjoyed it writing it, um, and it would have been hypocritical, and it was a challenge. You know, how am I going to? Because it's my book; it conveys my worldview. So how am I going to do that uh, in a way where I don't lecture and scold, where I don't step in? Uh, you know, as the lowercase g god of that world and tell people what to think. So it was just a matter of letting the characters do the judging instead of me. Um, I don't ever judge the characters. I don't ever judge the situations. I stay out of it and trying to put across my thoughts using universal themes instead of uh political or divisive themes. Obviously the book's political. Everything's political. Right. Leave it to Beaver's political. <laughs> yeah. But it's not it's not partisan in any way. A lot of left wingers have read it. And uh, I didn't say to them, is this political until after they read it and told me they liked it. And then I asked them and they were fine with it. And that to me was a big compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely what what about when you went out to market it? I mean you must have a target on your back. I mean I know that that, that publishing which used to be a, a little bit more fair than Hollywood, has really gotten the woke virus. And, you you know, I, I get editorial comments now that I can't believe, you know, you have to throw them away because uh, they're just so crazy, some of them. Did you have a hard time when you went out with it? Uh, you know, the thing was, was that I didn't, I, I never knew that I'd sent it to a publisher. I knew so little about the publishing business mm. that I went to people like you, and other people I knew who had been published, and I asked everyone what I asked you, which was, I don't want a reference. I don't want, I don't want to, I just, just give me an email address so I can send the, you know, the equivalent of an email cold call to a literary agent to see if they might be interested in the book. And someone gave me the name of uh, Adam Bello. Oh, yeah. And I thought he was a literary agent. I didn't yeah. know he was a publisher. Right. So I sent him the the query letter and um i don't know i think three months had passed and i'd pretty much given up by then i just figured i was going to publish it myself on amazon and i was a friday i was a friday night i remember and he sent me an email and it was the kind of email that you dream of getting mm. from a publisher the first time you've written a novel i was just blown away and i gotta tell you they were fantastic they um the editorial process, it went through three editors and they just made the book better. I didn't get any. No one told me I had to capitalize black, which I never would have done. <laughs> uh, no one. It was I didn't get any. There was no I guess they call it a sensitivity pass. Yeah, I, I didn't get anything like that. They were they were supportive. Uh, I probably 90 percent of the ideas they gave me. Um, I used and the other 10% I was on the fence and some of those ideas I'm still thinking about. I'm still <laughs> wishing, should yeah. I have done it? I don't know. Um, but no, they couldn't have been more supportive and the book just got better and better and better. So the process for me, and I was expecting it to be grueling because I've heard a lot of horror stories, including from guys like you. Um, it wasn't at all. Uh, yeah. I couldn't have asked for a better experience. Well, Adam is great. I mean, Adam has been a very, very, how he survived. I don't know, but he has managed to sort of keep yeah. a place in publishing. 
So I have to ask you, now Now you're actually like a culture creator, and you and I started out. I remember, one of the things I remember about our conversations is I, I literally sometimes felt that you and I were the only two people who were serious about what we were doing. You know, I mean, everybody was serious, but but they all had looked at it as a career where, for me, I never wanted to be political at all. I only wanted to write fiction, and you were trying to make films, but we felt compelled because the culture was so crappy. Did we, have we done anything? Have we accomplished anything? I think if anybody has, you have. Because, <laughs> I mean, you do this, you know, you do this show and you, you know, you create these great books every year. You write a book every year. It's just amazing yeah. what you do. I'm just awed by what, especially now that I've written a book. Yeah, it's um, not easy. It's true. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. It's it's, And I knew it wasn't easy before, which is why I never wanted to do it. So what you do is just extraordinary. Your success in Hollywood has been extraordinary. Um, so if anybody has, you certainly have, and you have a huge following and you make a good living at it, which in itself is a miracle because there's very few people make good money in fiction. I think the only thing I might've done at Breitbart is, you know, I, hopefully I just bring some moral clarity to things. Um, you know, when I look at the, you know, one example, I guess I can think of is Disney, yeah. what Disney's doing now. Yep. And you know, it's just, it's grooming. And I just <laughs> say it's grooming. Yeah. And God, God bless Breitbart for letting me say that. And I think that that, if, if anything that I've added to the, to the conversation, it's that. And I, and I think I can come from, I can come at it from a place of credibility because no one can question my love for the art of movies. Mm. I'm not, I'm, you know, you and I are unicorns yeah. because we're conservatives who love art. Right. There's plenty of conservatives who consume pop culture, but you and I take art seriously. Yeah. We love it. I love movies and you love you love movies and you love books. And it's there's there's, you know, most people on our side, their passions are faith. And I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm not saying we're above them. Yeah. But they love sports and they love faith. You know, they love they love studying religion and stuff like that. So you and I are unicorns. So, but no one can can look at me and say, "Well, you just hate movies because you're a conservative." <laughs> right. I have a 20 year career of loving movies and taking it seriously. So I think that if anything, I can add. People can say, "Well, this guy loves the art, and he thinks the art has been destroyed." And if he's saying that, he's saying that as someone who really does love it. And maybe I have some credibility there. I hope so. You know, I, when you mentioned Disney, I was thinking of a piece you wrote. I, one of one of my favorites of your pieces, although there are a lot of them that I love, about Kathleen Kennedy, where, I mean, you dismantled her like she was a, a robot when you had a screwdriver. I mean, it was just like you took her apart, her entire career apart. And then recently, you know, a South Park did a, a, a riff on it. And I, I'm, I don't know. I can't say for sure that they're reading you, but I'll bet they were reading you. I mean, I, I don't think that they would have, I don't think anybody noticed the, the consistent destruction of great franchises until you wrote about it. And then I think it just, it just kind of spread out, you know, so I think that that has an effect. But I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, is this, this woke stuff and the grooming stuff, it, it makes for bad art. I mean, the movies are bad now. It's very hard yeah. to go see a good movie. Do you, do you feel that we've made any progress banging it into the heads of conservatives. Because you're right, a lot of conservatives just don't care. And uh, one of the my memories of Andrew Breitbart is after giving a speech to conservatives about the culture, I called him up 
saying I just flopped. I mean, they didn't care at all. And he just roared with laughter and said, welcome, <laughs> welcome to my world. <laughs> do you, have we made any headway, do you think? With the no, no, I don't think so. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you another perfect example. Uh, I'll give you, I'll give you another perfect example. Breitbart has been extremely supportive about the book. I've been writing over there since two thousand eight. I got a really good audience over there. We put up five or six pieces about the book. Go look at the comments. This is no exaggeration. If there are seven hundred comments on an article about my book. 680 of them are either complaining that 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 we put the piece up or they're thread jacking, talking about something else. Mm. Maybe 10 are supportive. And that's what we're dealing with. People just they want to talk about politics. And I'm not complaining. I mean, I'm complaining a little bit. I'm (laughs) a little disappointed in that. But. But they, you know, they're so worried about drag queens in their schools. And, they, and I understand that. They're so yep. worried about the church going to hell. And I understand that. They're thinking, well, what do I care about this guy writing some dumb book about a guy who's immortal? What does that have to do with anything? But but I'm not exaggerating. Go look at the comments on any borrowed time post at Breitbart. And it is it is 97 percent negative. They don't want to hear it. So, no, I don't think we've made any inroads on that. I just, to just answer your question, honestly, I don't, and you know, and I love Andrew and he understood how important it was, but Andrew really didn't care about pop culture himself. He understood the importance of it, right? but he wasn't someone who watched a lot of movies or anything like that, but he was brilliant enough. He, he understood the importance of it. That's, that's a really interesting, yeah, that's a really interesting point about him. And I think it's a point about a lot. I mean, I was talking to a, a famous conservative just the other day, and he started denigrating uh, Charlie Chaplin, saying, hey, you know, why, why is he a hero? He was just a clown. And I said, hey, you know, if somebody is not making fun of Adolf Hitler, you know, then, then nobody is making fun of Adolf Hitler. And that's a very bad thing, you know. And uh, yeah, I, we just we don't seem to get it. I feel I feel that there are like little sprouts coming up through the ice. I, you know, maybe I'm an optimistic person and I feel like. I, I, st- I just started, for a long time, I was making these speeches and pounding the drum. And then I felt people started calling me and started saying, what, what did you say about the, you know, about the culture again? And what were you talking about? And I started to think, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe they are waking up a little bit. It is, it still amazes me that we don't have a think tank about culture, that we don't have a review venue, that we don't have the stuff that would, you know, for instance, borrow time, terrific novel, reads like a bullet, you know, really good prose. Who's going to review you? You know, I mean, who is going to say no yes? And who with the authority to say this is terrific is going to say it? You know, I mean, yeah, no, there's 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 I think most of my sales have come. Uh, Sasha Stone wrote a review, which I was, you know, I didn't ask her to do it. I could. She was just one. I, that's the only review I've gotten is from is from wow. Sasha. And wow. I, I, you know, it was a wonderful review. It was just uh, it blew me unexpected. But other than that. It's been me, and you've probably seen it. I've been begging on Twitter for people yeah. to buy the book. I've been posting the the Amazon reviews, which have been wonderful. But you know, I, I make don't don't misunderstand me. I make a good living at Breitbart. I do, mm-hmm. but no yeah. one would be blown away by my paycheck at Breitbart. And I'm semi-retired. I spent two years, I mean, two hours and hour, all my free time working yeah. on this book. 
And I'm not going to make on this book what I make two weeks at Breitbart. That's it's just the reality of it because yeah. it's, it's leftists are not going to pay me any attention. I'm not going to get over the wall that you need to get over to sell books. Um, and our side is much more concerned about other things. And I understand that I'm, I'm not sitting. And I knew that going in. I don't want to sit. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. No, I understand. You're just, it's just how it is. And I knew that going in. Thanksgiving is just two weeks away. Just in time for the holidays, Genucel is offering their best sale of the year. Right now, you can get 70% off Genucel's most popular package, which now includes Genucel 3, their newest under-eye treatment. Genucel 3 will have you looking 10, 15, or even 20 years younger. It uses advanced technology to deliver complex vitamins and minerals directly to your face for instant hydration. Say goodbye to fine lines, crow's feet, under-eye bags, and dark spots. The Genucel experience is like no other, but don't just take my word for it. Genucel will have you looking and feeling your absolute best guaranteed or your money back. No questions asked. My producer, Danny, was able to meet George, who was the CEO of Genucel yesterday. I met him, too. He was a great guy. Our favorite thing about Genucel is how clean their products are. They are simply the best. You deserve to look and feel your best this holiday season. Go to genucel.com slash Clavin to get this incredible holiday discount, 70% off their most popular package, which includes the Genucel 3 and the Dark Spot Corrector. Get results in 12 hours or less. The immediate effects are included for free. Genucel.com slash Clavin for 70% off today, plus free priority shipping. That's genucel.com slash Clavin. I know you're desperate at this point, just thinking, if only I knew how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. There are no easy so let's talk about uh, the Breitbart site a little bit. How, how do you feel Andrew would feel about the, the site if he were still with us? I, I think he'd be odd. Yeah. I, remember, I remember it was two days before Andrew died. And one of the great blessings of life, really, was that he called us all together because we were moving over to a new computer system. And I'd moved to North Carolina just weeks before, maybe months before. And he called it. And I almost didn't go because I had a cold. Um, but I, I went. And uh, it's just one of the blessings of life that he took me aside. We were there all week. And he took me aside. And we took a long walk, just me and him. And he told me about the goals. He told me what he wanted to do with the site. And he spelled it out mm-hmm. and he was talking, you know, how he, the guy was a visionary. Yeah, he was a visionary. And he was yeah. talking to where, where he wanted the site to be over the years. And he was talking in 10 years, he wanted this. And in 20 years, he wanted this. We hit it after, and then he died two, two days later, three mm-hmm. days later. We hit it in five years. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be odd where we're at. I think it'd be odd at the job. Uh, that Alex is doing and that we have all these different sites and there's a sports site now and there's a, there's a branch uh, in, in uh, overseas. We have two or three overseas branches. I do. I think he'd be, this is, this is what he taught. And I remember in the interview, him talking about, I didn't know Andrew when he interviewed me, I'd never met him. So I'm sitting in his basement and I just need a job because I literally, this isn't, I'm not trying to create mythology here. I literally had a job set up at Ralph's. Uh, to, to be a bag boy. That's how tough things were. The economy had just crashed. And, you know, nothing, there was nothing going on in Hollywood, especially someone who wasn't very good, wasn't a very good screenwriter. So um, I'm sitting in his basement. I don't know who he is. And he's talking about, oh, I want to do this and this and this with the big sites. I'm just thinking, 
if you'll pay me $3,500 a month, I'll do whatever you want at Big Hollywood. <laughs> That's all I was thinking. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, Alex is behind me and Larry's over here. I don't know these guys. And uh, I, I thought it was just BS, you know, because he sounded like a BS. And then here it is. It's all it's all right here. Fifteen years later, it's all right here. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing to yeah. see to see what's become of it. You know, one time when the Daily Wire was just starting, or it wasn't just starting, but it was kind of getting rolling. And I, I had you on the show to talk about Donald Trump. And I was on the fence because I just thought the guy, I, I didn't trust him. I didn't trust him to be a conservative guy. And you came on and you said, he's conservative enough for me. And I, I remember this vividly. And I don't care about the things he, the, the, the rude stuff he says, because he's a working class type of guy. And I, I'm used to that. And I think these guys are, these people who are shocked by it are just being wusses and all this. And I, I thought, you know, what you said uh, had an effect on me. And I think it turned out to be right. But then somewhere during the course of his administration, because you have always been just the straight, straightest talking person I know, you are literally the straightest talking person I know. You just started to say, no, this guy is kind of a, he's, he's not living up to what he said. Where do you stand now? At this point, I was DeSantis curious mm. until the lawfare started against Trump. Mm. And now I don't care if Donald Trump is guilty <laughs> of everything he is being charged with. I am going to vote for him. Wow. I don't care what he is guilty of. I am going to vote for him for one reason. I know what Joe Biden is guilty of. I know what these Democrat prosecutors are guilty of. And I will not live in a country where there is a two-tier justice system. I won't do it. So I like DeSantis. I think he's a great governor. He's been a pretty terrible candidate, and that's yeah. been disappointed. I was hoping he would give Trump a run for his money. But the moment they started prosecuting Trump, the moment they tried to turn this country into a banana— I don't care. I don't. I don't. I don't care if there's video of Trump standing there with the January sick with the guy with the horn saying, "I want you to break into the Capitol and sit at Pelosi's desk." I don't. I don't care. I don't care what he did. I don't care what. I know what Joe Biden's done. I know what Pelosi's done. They're all criminals, and I'm voting for them. I'm crawling over glass naked to vote for them. Wow. And that's that's the way that I feel, because that cannot be rewarded. This lawfare, this double system, it cannot be rewarded. You know, I, I have to tell you, I, I actually read most of the indictments, and I, I still don't know what he's being charged with. I still don't know yes, what crime and, he committed. You know? it's just, and that's the thing. It's, it, it is BS. Of course, it, and it's always BS. Yeah. I mean, Robert De Niro has to pay out $1.3 million dollars for gender discrimination. And I don't think Trump's ever had to pay out any suit yeah. like that. Yeah. And who's been calling who a monster for, for the last 10 years? And that's right. the way it's always been. Yeah, yeah. So all of that aside then, I mean, I think that's perfectly rational. I totally understand it. If, if, if Trump were to win, which seems possible, I don't, I'm not sure it is, but it seems, do you think that he could do, I mean, he was pretty effective those first three years until COVID yeah. hit, he was an effective president. Uh, and, and he was fighting. I mean, I know some of the people who are in the administration and he was fighting a deep state that was literally sabotaging everything he tried to do. It, it's amazing. Some, you know, third grade civil servant was basically trying to backstab the president in every department. Has he got what it takes to organize a, a true resistance to this stuff? I think he probably I mean, he's a very 
very smart guy. He's a very smart guy, yeah. I agree. So I think he's learned a lot. I think he learned a lot in the first term. And I think the beautiful thing about the second term is that he knows he can't run again. Hmm. So he's got nothing to lose. Yeah. It's not like he's got to be he's got to be pretty and sweet. He's in. He's the president. Um, he can't run again. So he's got nothing to lose. He can he can pretty much do whatever he needs to do and not have to worry about, you know, the swing voters. He could just get what get done, whatever he needs to, to do. And yeah, and you're right. I mean, look what he overcame. Look at how he got the wall built, all the moves he made to get done what he wanted to get done. If it wasn't for COVID, he would have been, I think he would have been reelected pretty easily. I think so too. I, I definitely think that's, that's, that's what uh, Gorko always says, you know, if it weren't for COVID. And I kind of think he blew COVID. I think he was, you know. Uh, Big time. Yeah, he, he was not paying enough attention and he didn't take the leadership role. But still, you know, up until that moment. So I'm talking, just to remind you, this is John Nolte from Breitbart. He's written a, uh, a really crackling good novel called uh, Borrowed Time. You know, just looking forward, more novels, uh, more anything, more in the culture. You're still you still write for Breitbart. I don't know every day, but often, right? You call yourself semi-retired, but you, I still see your material there. Yeah, I'm, I'm semi-retired, but I write three pieces a day. Yeah, yeah. Fifteen pieces a week, I I, I pump um, out. Yeah. But I always joke that I've been writing the twelve, the same twelve pieces for fifteen years. Just, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I've been doing, you know. Disney grooms and yeah. Robert De Niro socks. And <laughs> well, at least they're always right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing ever changes. So yeah. why should I? I? I don't have any plans uh, to write another book because, um, it, frankly, I don't have a good idea. Mm. Like I said, it was the Charlie idea that animated me to write. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written it. I just. I just wouldn't have done it. And I came about that in the most in the most roundabout way. I was uh, I was thinking about the book and I was stuck. And Charlie was always Lenny from Of Mice and Men, which is very cliched now. Of course, it wasn't in the 30s, but it was, you know, now it's cliched. And I just hated the idea. And uh, and then I thought to myself one day, I'm laying in bed and I thought to myself, well, since your good idea is so bad, maybe the opposite of your bad ideas are good. And that just changed everything. And that's when I came up with Charlie and I thought, oh man, you know, I got to write that. And then I used that method throughout the rest of the book to avoid cliches. And that, you know, I think you've probably been through that, Drew, where you just get an idea and it's like, I got to write this down. I got to tell this story. Absolutely. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, But I don't, I don't have a good idea to drive another book. Um, and like I said, there's no money in it. I just, Isn't that, yeah. you know, there's, I don't, there's no incentive to do it. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I knew it when I wrote this one and I'm glad I wrote this one. I really am now. I really, really am. Um, but I, no, I don't, I don't see it. And, and if someone told me, it, you know, if you write another book, it'll help the culture wars. Um, you won't make any money on it, but it'll help the culture wars as a charity. Maybe I do it then, but it wouldn't. It's just going to be a, a pebble in the ocean that doesn't ripple. Um, a lot of effort for no reason. But if I come up with an idea that grabs me by the throat, if I have to write it, yeah, then I would probably do it. But I pray I do not come up with that idea. because <laughs> I know that feeling. That's a very funny. I, I'll remember that. That's, that's very funny. I, so my, my only other question, would you consider writing... A, a nonfiction book. I mean, you are saying things about Hollywood, like I said, that no people say them after you say them, but nobody says them before you say them. You know, and I, I mean, 
would you write, you know, kind of an insightful book about what you think has happened to Hollywood? No, I've gotten, people have asked me that before. I've gotten some serious uh, inquiries about writing a book, like something about, you know, like 99 reasons CNN sucks, (laughs) things, books like that. And that just seems like it would just be too much work. It would just be homework. It would be a really grueling book for me to write Uh all the research um, and all that. I thought of writing a book about movies, not what's wrong with Hollywood, because that's my job. And I would also feel like I was taking away from my job if I did that. Um, And plus, I would make more money writing that for my job than I would for the book. Um, But I would uh, maybe I've thought about writing a nonfiction book about movies, about my love of movies, maybe. I've thought about maybe like uh, Christian movies that people don't know are Christian, mm, something good. like that. Not, not Passion of the Christ, but yeah. you know, here's here's a, this is a Christian movie. You don't know it's Christian because it's yeah. you know like the Bad Lieutenant, like the, the Harvey like Keitel movie. Um, I've thought about that, but uh, I don't know that that would that would be interesting to me, and it wouldn't be as difficult as a novel because that's novel is yeah. something entirely different. But yeah, and it would be easier to sell. John Nolte, read him on Breitbart, but get borrowed time. Support support the culture if you want to change the culture. It's great to see you, pal. It really is, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm so good to talk to you. We got to do this more often, even if it's not on uh, Daily Wire. And please give Jeremy and uh, Ben my love. I will do that, and uh, and yes, we'll. And I want you back here more often. Anytime, you know that. All right, it's great to see you. All right, you guys have your work cut out for you. You want to get Borrowed Time. You want to get The House of Love and Death. You want to get uh, Faith Moore's Christmas Carol. We're writing these novels for you. Buy them and read them, and you will enjoy them. And come to The Andrew Clavin Show on Friday, wherever you get your podcast, because I'll be there, and you should be there, too. (laughs) 